This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 1st of April, and today may be April Fool's Day, but our topic of discussion is no laughing matter. We will be discussing the voluntary carbon market, which is a space that is gaining increasing prominence globally, as countries and companies seek cheaper ways to cut their carbon footprints. But how big is this market, and why is there interest in this now? More importantly, will the purchase of carbon credits really help to reduce emissions, or is it just a way for companies to continue polluting under the guise of climate action? To discuss this today, we have Mr. Mikhail Larson, the Chief Executive of Climate Impact X, or CIX, a Singapore-based carbon exchange and marketplace. Thanks for joining us today, Mikhail. Thank you for having me, Audrey. So Mikhail, CIX recently launched Project Marketplace, which is like an Amazon for carbon credits of sorts. So companies can buy and sell carbon credits on this digital platform. So is there really a demand for these credits and why are companies buying them? Yeah, so the answer to that is yes, there is. But what we wanted to build was a platform that tried to allow people to transact in the knowledge that the product that they were buying was of good quality. And the way we articulated it was to ensure that this wouldn't be a displacement action, meaning that you don't buy these carbon credits instead of decarbonizing. And we built our entire set of platforms around that idea that you should be able to go in there and transact in trust in what you're buying. So the companies who are buying them come from different, different parts of the world, but they're all doing this right now as a voluntary action, i.e. they realize that at this point in time, there's only so much decarbonization they can do, either due to economic or technology challenges. And therefore, in a step towards helping to fight climate change, they want to do the right thing and they buy carbon credits. So, Mikhail, what about the sources of these credits? For a start, Project Marketplace will focus on nature-based solutions in Asia. But why nature? Well, there are many good reasons of this. There are good economic reasons and there's good um, philosophical reasons for doing these things. First of all, on the hard economics of these things here, if we look at the gap that we're trying to bridge to, to meet our climate Paris accord, nature-based solutions are the most economically efficient way of doing them. And they're also the largest source of supply. And if you start to think about it with the enormous amount of carbon sinks that we have around the world, that's what we're trying to preserve. Why Asia? Well, Asia is about a third of that. Many of the carbon sinks, the largest ones in the world, are placed around the equator. So not unnaturally, that means that in South America, Africa, and Southeast Asia, and the larger part of Asia. So that's the economic reason for it. Another economic reason is, of course, that when you're trying to make impact, which we sincerely are, making sure that money flows into the global south, which I guess is a term people are using these days, is a really, really important thing. Of course, everything has to be done the right way. But there's another reason for this. 
we tend to forget that we're not just fighting a climate crisis, but we're also fighting a biodiversity loss crisis. And for that, nature-based solution has what is often mistermed co-benefits. I tend to think of them as the co-benefit. What they do is obviously they preserve biodiversity, but actually what they also do is they give rise to livelihood for about, I think it's 1.6 billion people around the world. That's an astonishing feature. So nature-based is solutions, and maybe it's also worth clarifying for the listeners what they are. So they are preserving our forest, their afforestation, i.e. building new forest, but it's also many other things. It's building new mangroves, and it's about protecting coastlines, and it's also soil solutions. And all of these things are critically needed, not only if we're fighting climate change, but also, as I said, protecting biodiversity and trying to focus on inequality at the same time. So those are just some of the reasons. But I also often give the the, the, the fun, the not so fun fact, I guess I should say, which is that every second we're losing about a football field of pristine forest, which means that the amount of forest loss that we're having right now is enormous. And we gotta use all means we can to stop that from happening. So thanks, Miguel. That's a really good example of why these projects are important. But what other types of carbon projects uh, will come online, perhaps in the in the not so distant future? Yeah, you're also right, because of course, nature-based solutions is uh, my passion, but the world needs much more than that. And if you start to look at that um, without using too much technical lingo here, there are two types of, there's kind of um, two by two matrix you can do for this. There's nature-based solutions, and that's what broadly is called technology solutions. So those are essentially things that we use technology to sequester carbon. And those could be things like what's called carbon capture and storage, it's biochar, um, these types of solutions. On the other axis, if you think of it as a two-by-two, there are those where we avoid emissions to get into the atmosphere, and there are those where we're trying to remove them. So the first category would be things like protecting nature from deforestation. Um, and the second one is where we're removing the sequestrations again. Uh, and in the tech space, just to give an example of that, that is where we try and use some of these technology to capture it from the air. And the reason why I give you this little introduction is because what the science is very clear is we need to both avoid further um, sinks from being eliminated, but we also need to start to remove carbon from the air. And now to your question, we want to bring those tech solutions onto our platform as well. So things like biochars, we are looking to put onto our platform as well, because although these solutions are a lot more expensive than nature-based solutions, we believe in a portfolio where part of your portfolio is in preservation, the nature we already have, and part of your portfolio is to remove carbon already in the air. So those would be some of the things we put on. We're also looking into other types of credits as well. So, Mikael, you know, buyers and sellers of carbon credits are all actors in the voluntary carbon market. Uh, but this market is not new, although it does seem to be getting a lot more crowded these days. So more people are shopping for credits. And at the same time, we see developers of carbon projects looking to list new projects. Mm. What do you think accounts for this growth? So if in the, in the short, short answer is the commitments that corporates are making now, realizing the urgency of the problem. So many corporates have set what's called net zero targets, which means that they're trying to get to a fully decarbonized uh, production line if you're a production company. 
And to do so, even with the best of effort, many of them are realizing that either the economics is constraining them or technology is constraining them. So they set themselves target by somewhere between 2030 and 2050. But to in the meantime, as I said in my earlier reply, try to take some climate action, they use carbon credit voluntarily. And that's been driving a lot of the demand. I think the latest number I was looking at was 2000 something had set themselves target on the science-based target and many, many more have set themselves net zero targets. And that's been driving the demand. If you look at the supply side though, so picking up on that demand, supply has been trying to catch up with the demand. But given that it takes time for this supply to come to market somewhere around two years time, you're looking at a, a supply squeeze in the meantime. Um, and that's obvious because as I said, demand picks up um, momentarily, but supply doesn't cannot catch up uh, as quick as that. So what is the monetary value to this um, voluntary carbon market? What is it valued at now? And are there projections for how much more it could grow by? Sure. So I think the latest number in dollar terms that I saw was around a billion dollars. Um, and in tonnage, I think it's around uh, 250 plus um, gigatons, uh, megatons of carbon credits. Now, that doesn't mean very much to the listeners, perhaps. But what does mean look uh, mean something is I think the year-on-year increase in the activities from 2020 to 2021 was uh, close to 300%. So where is it looking to go from here? Well, of course, there are many different projections. But if I said that the market right now is about um, 200 million tons, uh, it's projected to go to somewhere between 700 million at the very, very low end to 2 billion tons at the high end by 2030. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, carbon credits don't always have the best reputation. Uh, There are questions around the so-called integrity of the projects, for example. And one big criticism is... How do we know these projects truly result in emissions reductions? And are they legitimate and regularly inspected? So how does CIX ensure that the projects listed on its platform are of high quality Mm. and regularly monitored? Excellent question. You're absolutely right. Um, David, allow me to take a step back here. And I started with the first question to say we're trying to ensure that people could transact with trust. Um, And that means four specific things to us. It means trust in the quality of the product, which is the one that you're just asking me about now. It means trust in the execution, but it also means trust in the use of the product. And I think we'll be speaking a little bit more about that in a second. And then trust in the ongoing monitoring. And why is that important? It's important because the way the voluntary carbon market is set up is credits are issued when carbon has been sequestered or captured from the air. But if subsequently that carbon has been released again into the air, there is no real mechanism to go back and undo the carbon credits that were issued. There are certain smaller mechanisms, but not really something that 100% guarantees this. So what do we do? Focusing on the first thing around the quality of the project, we've gone to some extent to make sure that we just don't take things for face value. It all for us start with picking the right verification bodies. 
that means there are many, many new types of credit that comes to market. And we're selective about which one that we pick. So we look at the methodologies for this and pick the ones that are recognized and from reputable verification bodies. But we go to a greater extent than that. We then also uh, have our own intern scoring system for which we have our own overlay and says, what are the things that are important to us? And we put uh, emphasis on four areas. Of course, the core attribute of does this project sequester thing, but also biodiversity protection, social integrity, meaning does money go to the right people, and also the governance of the project. So that means we have in-house expertise. On top of that, uh, we calibrate our own observations to third-party rating agencies. And then very, very importantly, we brought together what we call our International Advisory Council, which is constituted by NGOs and academics and buyers and sellers who advise us on these things here. So I would say we go to a great extent to try and avoid having uh, projects that don't do what they're meant to do. I will say, though, because it's the right thing to say, that in many respects, nature is messy which means that even when you try and do everything you can, there is no absolute guarantee that these projects will be permanent, meaning stay for 100 years. And I think here we have to be careful not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, and I say this because I have we've been working with project developers who I think has very high integrity. And even in theirs, you can always end up having problems. And that's the problem when we are working with really large-scale projects. So, Mikael, another concern is um, greenwashing. And I think you did mention earlier about how, you know, companies should not just buy carbon credits in mm. view of taking extra action to reduce their emissions. So that obviously is a concern for CIX. But how do you guys go about solving this challenge or dealing with it anyway? Yeah, it's great. I don't know if I can 100% solve it, uh, but I can suddenly try so remember in my previous answer, I was saying we were focusing on, on four areas of trust. So this is our third trust pillar, responsible use of the product. And if you're a platform like ours, I essentially have two choices. I can advocate for this and I can educate, or I can try and police it. The reality is that we are right, not the right party in our own minds to police these things. There are better parties to do this, like science-based targets or many of the other good initiatives out there. So what we try to do is we try to advocate. And what does that mean concretely for us? It means that we've been doing our own advocacy in public forums. It means that we've written position papers on this, some of which is available. And most importantly, we're building a community of buyers and sellers and NGOs and academics who learn from each other. So the, the word, key word here is community here, because many of these people want to learn from each other what is responsible use. We can talk about it, and you, you have probably a different definition of greenwashing is than what I have here. The key thing in my mind here is that those who have gone down this route, who are the leaders in their industry, can explain to others how they've done it and what is a good way to do things. So between our own advocacy and letting people speak to each other, we think that's where we get the most impact in trying to avoid the, the acquisition, which has been fair in many respects around greenwashing. So finally, we've seen a lot of changes in the voluntary carbon market over time. So what are some of the other trends that you're keeping an eye on? Oh, that's another great question. There, there are many, of course, when you're in my position there. 
um, you, you're partly uh, having to worry about all these things. And it is a very fast moving uh, space, uh, David. But if I had to boil it down to two, one of them I touched upon before, which is the changing landscape of the supply. And with it, that I see two different trends. One is a real proliferation in types of credits coming to market, um, new registries, and by that meaning different type of people who set themselves up to issue carbon credit. And that is to a certain extent a concern because you have to know which one are trustworthy and which one is not. But it's also the change as we talked about before of the supply. And I'm really focused on how quickly will the technology solution become affordable for clients um, and how do I make sure that it doesn't crowd out nature-based solution, which I sincerely believe we still need. Um, so that's one thing I'm focusing a lot on. Within the supply space, I also focus a lot on the fact that some of these projects are being absorbed into jurisdictional program. And that means that countries are starting to be the issuer of these credits here. And that makes the dynamic very different. The other thing I focused on is this integration between the voluntary and the compliance market, meaning that some of these carbon credits are being allowed into schemes, for example, here in Singapore, where 5% of your carbon tax can be paid for or in lieu of paying the tax, you can use voluntary carbon credit. And that will give a completely new demand signal to the market. Of course, what I'm hoping is for a truly global market, because that's the best way to create the impact, rather than countries creating schemes that only works for the country itself. So both supply and demand has to be within the same country. And Singapore, again, has been very visionary in allowing for an international use of carbon credit. So those are the two key trends, the integration between voluntary and compliance market and the changing landscape of supply. So thank you so much, Mikkel, for joining us and giving us such a great overview of the voluntary carbon market. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Mikkel. That was really, really insightful. Thanks, David. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.